I'm Mike Gorman, and you're listening to the Celtics Pod podcast for Celtics Blog. Here's your host, Adam Taylor. What's good, y'all? Happy Wednesday. Happy game two of the playoffs day. Happy Boston about to beat Philly for the second time in three days day. We're going to look at game one. We're going to look ahead to game two. And then there's been some... Some smoke flying around the league off some of these less fancied teams. I'm joined by Mr. Tim Shields and Mr. Wayne Breezy Brown. What's good, y'all? Hanging in, man. Trying to just enjoy this win. I know we've had some news come out, so just trying to roll with it, you know? I love the impersonation of Wayne Breezy Brown. That was pretty cool, man. But I'm doing great. I'm great. It's great. It's great to be here, guys. How should it sound, Wayne? How should it sound? You got to put the Breezy Brown. Like, you got you to gotta get the decibel up a little bit higher on your high note. I know you can hit it. <laughs> I mean, people who listen to this show have heard me rap, they've heard me sing. I'm not about to start going decibel levels at the beginning because then no one's going to listen to the rest of the show. I got you, brother. I got you. I got but you. It's been a yo. That game was a, that game was dope. The game was intense. It was a really really tough matchup. I think we should start where the biggest news is with Gordon Hayward now being out for up to four weeks, which takes us towards the Eastern Conference playoffs. Along that time, his wife may or may not go into labor. Ideally, it will be during those four weeks, obviously, because then the time he misses outside of the bubble will coincide with the injury. But these things aren't within anybody, anybody's control and nobody can feel any kind of way about him wanting to be there for the birth of his child. But these next four weeks, we're going to see a different rotation. We're going to see maybe one of the younger rookies slide into that rotation. Are you guys feeling about losing Hayward after game one? I mean, it's rough, right? We just came into this situation with Philly. This is a team that we struggled with uh, the entirety of this season, I feel. In my mind, we've had a lot of issues with them. And to lose a player like Gordon Hayward, it really hurts. You know, he's probably your best all-around player in terms of the little stuff he does. Um, I know we've talked about potentially Jalen Brown being in that conversation, but this kind of sprain that he has, that grade three ankle sprain, we're talking about torn ligaments. This guarantees he's going to be out for Philly, and you've got that potential second-round matchup with Toronto that looms there. So, really, it's difficult. You know, what do, you, what do we expect in terms of who's going to take his minutes? How are they spreading it out now? Are, are you more nervous going against Philly because you don't have that other scoring option or that other shot creator? Now, does this really put a damper on the trajectory of this team for the remainder of the season? You know, you've got a lot of questions that are coming up, and that game against Philly wasn't perfect. Um, there were a lot of things they did that was really, really good and effective, especially when it came to containing Joel Embiid. But there were still adjustments to be made. And now you're looking at making even bigger adjustments with a key cog like Gordon Hayward out of the picture. So I'm a little worried. I'm not completely discouraged, but I definitely have some concerns there. I think it sucks. Gordon Hayward was finally coming in, coming into his own. We were getting that Gordon Hayward back like we were seeing that golden aura like painted around the picture. We had Stash Hayward coming into play like this. He was definitely a big plus for the Celtics. There was a couple of games in, you know, the A-game uh, series that we were going through that where he just like illuminated teams, right? He was just lighting up. And we were like, oh, we're going to get this type of production from him coming to the playoffs. Teams, I kept... Not only I, I think a lot of people were saying that this he's going to be the X factor up until the part where he has to leave. Then it's unfortunate that he, you know, he goes up for a rebound and he just he lands awkwardly on his foot. At first, it didn't look weird until I saw the replay, and then I was just like, "Ouch!" Ouch! He ste- stepped on Tice's foot. I mean, it's one of those things. It's just another bad luck, man. 
there's no other words I can say, Adam, but it sucks. It sucks. It sucks. I mean, this is why players need to have smaller feet, right? Because if Tice's foot was a few inches smaller, then this injury don't happen. Oh, that's comical. I love it. Yeah. You start binding feet. <laughs> yeah, like, just shrink your feet down a little bit, guys. I know you're going to look disproportionate, but, you know, injuries like this will be saved. Jokes aside, it's going to be tough. I'm kind of, ex- well, I, I completely expect Marcus Smart to slide into the starting lineup and absorb the majority of those minutes. I kind of don't want that to happen for the simple reason of the bench unit of Marcus Smart, Brad Wanamaker. Those two guys coming off the bench together have been really defensively sound when two of the starters have sat. So maybe we see Smart start and then get get benched early so he can still get that running with that second unit. Or maybe Brad drops a surprise and throws in a guy like Shemi or Grant or Romeo. Whoever he looks to to start isn't really going to be where the majority of those minutes soak up because Smart's going to absorb loads, probably an extra 10, 15 minutes a night, maybe. I mean, what did he average last night? He averaged he averaged 31 minutes last night. So, well, sorry, the night before last night. So there's not really much more he can absorb. So, so somebody somewhere is going to need to absorb Hayward 34 minutes, yeah? So that's going to be maybe you see it split between two guys. Maybe you see it split between Grant and Romeo. Maybe you see Shemi come in. It's going to have to be a committee type of thing, similar to what they did on rebounding, where you rebound by committee. It's going to be a production by committee. I do feel Romeo's game is best suited to fit in with what Hayward does, just because of how Romeo, and I wrote about this recently, how Romeo's in that same mold to eventually develop into a very complete all-round guy. But his nursing that wrist injury, is it worth putting him in so early into into the playoffs, knowing that he may tweak something or he may re-injure something and he's had his own injury issues throughout the season as well Boston just isn't getting lucky with these Indiana natives man I feel like it's just at this point it's just a curse it's the state of Indiana it's just a whole curse but specifically as you mentioned with Romeo I I wouldn't want to rush him back right because at this point in time I feel like you're better off with maybe trying to sneak in some grant minutes at the four I know before we recorded, Adam, you were talking about how Jason Tatum has played, you know, really well at the four slot. And we've only seen Grant, I think you said 23% of his minutes were only at the small forward spot. Yeah, so. 29% is spent at the small, uh, at the three spot. He's majority playing at the four with a tiny little bit of the five sprinkled in. I just, I don't see them trying to play him at the five and then changing up their lineup entirely. But I think if you were to try and play him at the four and slide Tatum over to three, Brown to the two, that would give you a little bit of options if you're not trying to start Marcus Smart or as you recommended, you know, pulling him a little bit once you actually have him get started. But what I want to anyway, so Hayward's been playing primarily the three. You, I don't feel like Grant's going to be quick enough and mobile enough and his three-point shot isn't res- um, respected enough to be a threat playing the three. That's why he's primarily played the four. If you slide him to the five, Embiid's just going to eat all night long. It's it's going to be absolutely yeah, suitable. That, I would not recommend that for sure. I think it's more suited for him to play at the four. Because as you said, I think when it comes down to what you need Grant to do when he's out there, he needs to be able to just take care of the ball, make smart decisions, move the ball around for other players, and just make those high IQ basketball kind of plays. I think with Grant, I think you're better served putting him at the four if you're going to give him any minutes out there. And I think given the situation that you're in right now, I think it's not the worst option. And I think if you're trying to save smart to give him more minutes on the bench to try and stabilize that bench unit, especially defensively, I think that's the move. I'm sitting here looking up the matchups, right? So we talked about 
why we wouldn't want to move Tatum because Tatum was eating that matchup last night. I mean, he was he it was like he couldn't miss. He was eating up that matchup, and I think moving him out of that four spot would be a little bit detrimental. Not saying he can't play the three. It's just that it might change the flow of the game. It might change some of Tatum's scoring. He may not be able to get on as quick. So I, I, that's not broke. I don't think you move – since it's, if it's not broke, you don't fix it, that kind of saying. I think you keep him there. I do like the idea of starting smart and then maybe sprinkling in the next guy so that smart can come back out with that second unit because – you need the, the smartest person on the floor so that Brad Wanamaker can do what he does best, right? Because we know that he struggles when it comes to facilitating the ball and, and doing things like that. Turnovers happen. So we want Marcus Smart there with him. I Just going back to Gordon Hayward being injured, it's tough, but we have to move forward. The next man has to be ready to come in. I know what you said about Romeo Langford. No one wants to rush this kid back, but we need him defensively. And I don't know if this is the series you want to spin him for defense or, you know, moving on to the next series. But we do got to get past the series. Like, we got to win this series. So I can't wait to see what happens, just to be honest. I mean, it's going to be some some Langford. He's had a couple of days off, so maybe his wrist is a little bit better. Uh, and we know he needs the surgery or whatnot going into the offseason. But his defense is going to be a key because one thing he can do is guard those wings. And if, as you saw in the game, like, they were scoring, not at will. It's just that if we could have had maybe some better contested shots, maybe a, a, a longer hand in somebody's face or whatnot, maybe some of those shots don't fall. So I think we may see a little bit of more, uh, a little bit more of Romeo Langford in this particular matchup because the Celtics want to close this out in four games. Well, we all, <laughs> with, um, with Grant specifically, and I'll let Adam go, I think the one thing that we've talked about before with Grant is specifically he's not great at defending wings. And that's the advantage that Romeo Lankford's going to have. Even with that hand injury that he's dealing with, with the ligaments or the, in the wrist, you're, he's going to bring that defensive intensity. He's going to be able to handle those wings a lot better than Grant will. Yeah, and then if we're talking about sliding smart into the lineup, when you look at where Jalen Brown's played this season, he's played 49% at the free spot. No, sorry, he's played 46%, 49 on his career. 46% at the free spot. To me, that kind of sits well when you think of how many games um, Haywood's missed throughout the season on and off, how many times Brown's kind of slid up to allow smart play at that too. And Brown can still eat at the free because he's, he's three-point shot and his ability to kind of beat guys off the dribble and get that mid-range J is dramatically improved. If you can do that and then sit smart early and then bring in like either Brad Wanamaker, which I don't see why you'd do that, or Romeo, then you can really start to slide someone into those minutes instead of having to rework your entire offensive scheme. Luckily, my biggest take on this before we move on is Hayward's missed multiple stretches of time throughout the season. So the Celtics are very used to operating with him down. Now, that's not a good thing. It's not, but it's a silver lining. It's, well, we've been here before. We've had to play without Hayward before. We've had to kind of slide somebody into those minutes previously. So it's not, they're not in uncharted territory. It still sucks, but it's not the end of the world. Although he is, in my opinion, very conducive to the Celtics going on to lift the championship at the end of the season. Moving on, yo, we've got to figure out, well, we, we haven't got to do anything because we're not on the coaching staff, but the Boston need to figure out how to has to deal with these wings. You saw it with Al Horford multiple times in game one where he'd get the ball on the low block and facilitate. That's something that we saw of him in Boston Green throughout his time in Boston 
every game he'd get the ball down on the low block he'd facilitate to the corners he'd hit a kick out back up to a cutting guy coming off the top of the break he just understands how to facilitate from that area of the floor and he may not have been doing it great for Philly coming into the playoffs but what I saw from him in game one in that third and fourth quarter he was a problem he was the one making the offense tick and he was a big reason why their shooters were finding open space on the corners that's going to be a problem, right? Because Al Horford is a very, very good passer. He's able to create, as you said, for other people. And he has a very dependable three-point shot, enough that you don't feel comfortable leaving him on the outside. If, from a Celtics perspective, there was one play specifically where Marcus Smart ended up playing help defense on it, and Horford went to go kick out, and Smart ended up getting a hand on it, and I think they ended up getting a bucket in transition because of it. Uh, Boston, in general, killed it in terms of taking a lot of points off turnovers from Philly. I think they ended up having, let me double check and just confirm before I found it off. Yeah, there were a total of 18 turnovers caused by Boston. And on that, they got 21 points off turnovers. So if you're Boston, I think a big key from that is trying to break up plays like that. I think Al Horford, once he gets in that low block, as you said, he's able to kick out to the wings. If you can try and collapse a little bit, and get in with like a sneaky kind of double team, get a little bit of help defense like Smart did on that play, trying to force errant passes is going to be key for that. They did a lot of that when it came to defending and beat as well, is getting help defense as soon as he got set up in the low post. As soon as he got set up in the post, they had another defender come in. There was another play where Gordon Hayward came in and kind of snuck in, took the ball away, and got a. they ended up getting a bucket in transition, I think, to Wanamaker. So trying to create spots like that where you know – because of the size they have, they're going to try and post you up, and the post-ups either going to open you up on the interior or it's going to force them to kick out to the outside and try and get buckets. As long as you're trying to seal off those passing lanes, you're going to be able to cause some problems for Philly. And that's one thing Boston has done all year very well. They've been able to get into those passing lanes, get interceptions, I know this isn't football, and get the ball out in transition and get easy buckets. I mean, they missed it. The first half, they missed a few. They missed what, about? They had eight points they missed off of layups. Um, the fact that they were getting those steals and getting into transition and getting down there was really good. They were getting to the foul line. There's so many positives you can take from this game. The fact that you mentioned that that help defense by Gordon Hayward was perfect, was spot on. It was going to be actually one of my points. It was like MB caught the ball on the block. He was trying to back down. Boom, quick trap right there on that block. Right, like It was like MB didn't know what to do. Hayward swipes the ball. And as you mentioned, Tim, it, they were off to the races. That's some of the things that we're going to miss, right? Because he, his IQ, his skill set is no longer going to be available. And th- th- that might be one of my concerns going forward. Like, how do we replenish that? I know we're not going to be able to replenish. I had this crazy, this crazy theory, and I'll keep it quick, right? I had this crazy theory. I feel like Gordon Hayward is the Celtics' Ben Simmons that can shoot. What I mean by that is Ben Simmons is great at what? Facilitating. He's really great at facilitating. He's really great at knowing where the next person's supposed to be, setting the person up, getting in the ball when they need to get the ball, things like that, almost like a quarterback. That's what Gordon Hayward was to the Celtics. I'm not saying that any, none of these other players can't do some of the same things that Gordon Hayward does, but Gordon Hayward owned that role, right? Because he went from being a number one option to a number four option and being able to facilitate. He, so he was our point forward. I think we spoke about that, you know, many moons ago on, on an episode. That's where Marcus Smart comes in, right? That's when his facilitating capabilities kick in because that's what he can be. And I just think, which Smart are we going to get? 
That's the question you're going to ask yourself. Are you going to be able to get the scoring smart with the facilitating, or do we just want the defensive facilitating smart and let everybody else do what they have to do? Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I don't want the scoring smart. I want defensive smart that facilitates because when he scores, his defense kind of falls off, and that's a natural a natural trade-off that any player is going to have because you can't focus to become an elite-level scorer and be an elite-level defensive player, especially when Smart's on record saying he believes he's the best defensive player in the league. Great. Be the best defensive player in the league. The Celtics don't need you to be a scorer. They need you to be a facilitator. According to Basketball Index, Marcus Smart is the best playmaker on the Celtics roster, period, by quite a stretch. So you don't want him shooting because you're taken away from his playmaking ability, which he's by far and large the most prominent member of the roster. That's my opinion on Smart. In terms of the help defense, the one thing you'll notice is they weren't totally helping off their man. They were what's called digging. They were digging in, which is when you kind of stunt on your guy to apply on-ball pressure momentarily before releasing your that pressure and going back to guard your original defensive assignment. What the Celtics done really well was when they were putting that pressure on, when they did dig in, they were getting the swipes, they were getting the reaction off Embiid. As the game wore on, Embiid become visibly more frustrated because of that scheme they were using on him. He started to turn the ball over. He became less invested on the block. As he became less invested on the block, they became less dominant on the inside and they started relying on guys like Josh Richardson, Shake Milton, and oh my God, it hates me to say it, but the impressive Matisse Feibel. It's... One of those things where they took away the Sixers' most dominant player by getting inside of his head early and often. I don't know, and I spoke about this to somebody. I'm sure it was pretty on like a Twitter feed. It was, it was public anyway. What they did was, what I was saying was, what type of MB do you get in game two and three? You're either going to see him come in and dominate and be like, no, you're not getting in my head that easy. Or you're going to get the Soul King Embiid where, He's not as interested, he seems a little bit dejected, and he doesn't have the impact that you'd hope he does. This is a big series for Philly, just as much as it is for Boston. The only difference is the one coach has just signed an extension. The other one is legitimately on the hot seat, along with those two stars. If Embiid can't get it done, maybe they look towards Simmons to move forwards. That would be an interesting decision to make down the line, but... I don't know. It's interesting thinking about Philly's construction currently as is. You think there's a lot to be desired in the way they've built their team. They've thrown out a lot of money to guys to try and just put names together. And I don't know if they necessarily have been putting, let's say, the best pieces that fit around Ben Simmons and Joel Embiid to try and complement them. I think with Joel Embiid, I'm hoping from a Celtics perspective that we keep going the way we're going. You know, having that help defense, making sure he can't get set up in the block and making sure we're not getting him going bananas in the post on us because that's the last thing we want to see. He had a huge first quarter, was five for five from the field with like 11 points, I think, in that first quarter. And then after that point, they really did their best to try and defend him uh, a little bit stricter. The one thing I will say is he still was easily Philly's best player. I also wonder if they're going to try and get him away from the three-point line. There was a couple times last night where he was settling for threes. And I don't know if this is just remnants of when they were playing with Ben Simmons and that's just like what the scheme calls for. And, hey, he's going to shoot these threes because that's a way that they're going to have to come and respect him defensively. But he was one for four from threes. He hit that one crazy one-legged one to beat the shot clock. But then he took three other threes. And I just don't. 
from my perspective, I don't know why they had him do that when he was so clearly dominating in the post. And I feel like if I'm Philadelphia in this situation, that's where I'd want to do it. I'd much rather try and get Al Horford to have to go out to the perimeter if I'm having any of my bigs take threes and try and get Joel Embiid in there because at the very least, you're going to try and get him to draw some fouls, get to the line. I think he was 9 for 12 from free throws. Yeah, 9 for 12 on free throws. So put him in the post. Let him do his work. So just to jump in here real quick, do you know that big hammer dunk he had in the first quarter? Yeah. That is specifically why they place him at the three-point line and have him shoot the occasional three-point shot. Because then when you do respect him and he hands off and the guy he hands off to starts that drive, somebody's going to take their eyes off Embiid for that moment, but they're going to be high enough up for Embiid to get them on his hip. And then he's available for that that drop-off pass for the big dunk. So it kind of pays dividends probably once or twice. If you're lucky, three times a game. But those are easy points to get just because the defense has to respect that free. Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you look at the play calling for Philly, those threes, and he had more, like those plays where he was set up at the top, he was wide open. And then there was plenty of times where he kind of like pump faked and then tried to dribble and kick off or whatnot to, uh, to where he did not take the shot. Um, we know he went one for four, which is 25%. But um, I think that's just part of his game plan. Like, we know that he's probably going to shoot three to four three-point shots a game. That's something Embiid probably does. When he's hitting, he's hitting. And when he's not, he's not. I mean, it's just as simple as that. But like you said, Tim, he was still their most dominant player. Listen, this kid finished with 26 points and probably could have finished with more if they had kept the game plan the way they had it. Uh, Boston did adjust on defense. So let's. It's it's not like they didn't adjust. But Embiid is a special player. And I wanted to really touch on what Adam said about them possibly might moving on from Embiid and kind of building around Simmons. And I get it. Simmons is your younger player. Let's date ourselves back just a little bit, right? Let's go back to L.A. I know we don't like L.A., but let's go back to L.A. when they had Shaq, right? And let's go back to when they got Kobe, right? They, you know, they traded in the draft for Kobe and got Kobe Bryant. And, you know, Kobe had to work his way up. And But those two were dominant together. I think the difference between Shaq and Embiid or the difference between the, the Lakers and the, and the 76ers is that, you know, Simmons is just not going to be able to give them that shooting ability to what Kobe gave uh, Shaq and the Lakers. And I think that, that's why that probably worked. Plus the coaching was different, obviously, in the game plan and the schemes and all that type of stuff. But I think they just need different players for Embiid, you know, because I'm sitting here looking at the box score and I'm saying to myself, guys, this game is probably not even close if we don't let a player like Alec Burke get 18 points. I mean, I, I think with specifically like for Burke, I mean, he was six for 15 from the field. He was only one for three. Their, their actual, their best three-point shooters were Josh Richardson and Jake Milton. They both had three threes apiece. Uh, Richardson was three for nine from three. Milton actually was three for five. So I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to get Milton some more looks from beyond the arc. In terms of the comparison with the with the Lakers and the Kobe Shaq situation, I think you have a different animal in this kind of situation. It's a it's a, is it a, is it a different animal or the same beast? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> with with that situation, like I know what you're saying with Simmons, but I think when you look at old school players like that, it was a different kind of mentality. And I don't know if these guys have it or not. If that's not really necessarily pertinent. I think it comes down to the fact that players have to want to improve. And I don't know if we've seen that same kind of passion and drive from both of these guys. 
I think you have varying levels of that in both these players. Okay, we're going to run off the break. When we're back, we're going to look towards the rest of the league. And there's a few little aspects I want to touch on for the Sixers before we do so. We'll be back shortly. Grab yourself a drink because we're going to be doing the exact same thing. So we've touched on Embiid, we've touched on the way they defended him, we've touched on Hayward, we've touched on who's going to be sliding in to absorb those minutes. One of the primary things which I want to touch on is something I was quite passionate about, I wrote about it recently on Celtics blog, was how the Celtics attacked the space in that drop scheme that Embiid was running, how deep Embiid was actually dropping into the paint, and how they were kind of willing to live with the Celtics shooting that mid-range shot. Somebody somewhere has not done their homework because the Celtics can live with that mid-range shot all day long. Jason Tatum will literally thank you. He will shake your hands and delight, look delighted. He will be gleeful if you keep giving up that long mid-range shot. Kemba Walker coming off the screen is an absolute nightmare when you let him get to the free-throw area, free-throw line area and on those top half lines. Jalen Brown showed that he's not afraid to pull up from there. The Celtics literally punished and manipulated the Sixers' defense because of the space that the Sixers were allowing the Celtics once they got past their perimeter D. It was kind of like this four or five foot worth of space between the perimeter defense and then the paint defense. And I understand why they were doing that. They were trying to make sure that Jalen and JT weren't getting to the rack at will, and that worked. But what it did was it allowed for those mid-range pull-ups, those step-back, to become quite prominent and quite a large part of the way the Celtics were attacking that defense. I'm very curious to see if they adjust in game two, the Philly adjusts, I should say, because they don't have their best perimeter defender in Ben Simmons and placing them beat too far up does create a liability for some backdoor cuts and some trapdoor plays. What I am curious about is, do the Celtics go straight back at that mid-range area or do they lull the Sixers into a sense of security similar to what they did in, that, in game one before kind of feasting in that area in the third and the fourth? I think it's going to be what you said in the latter. I think it'll be a matter of just working the game and seeing how the game flow goes. I think offensively, Boston's big key thing beyond just shot selection of where they're shooting from the floor, continue what you're doing in terms of taking care of the ball and hit your open shots. As we talked about before, there were a lot of missed open looks. And you, against a team like Philly, you just can't do that. You know, they out-rebounded you. Uh, by a few rebounds there. They had one more assist than you. Both teams were having a rough shooting night, but you need to take care of the ball, do what you can to get turnovers because Boston was working with that really well. And I think in terms of what you saw with them offensively, I think running in transition was big. Their transition points were key and crucial to winning this game. And I think just playing with pace, play this game with pace and just get your shots up the best way you can. I think those mid-range looks, especially for Jalen and Jason, have been big. Kemba, especially when it comes to change of speed, if you get him off a pick, there was a couple times where he just was making some moves. And then there was another one that Jason Tatum straight up put Matisse Thibel on an island and just froze him and just lost him. It got like a few feet of space and it just made all the difference on the shot. So if you could try and get mid-range looks like that and just keep rolling with that, feeding your guys that you know are going to beast in that mid-range yeah it's gonna make a problem yeah I thought the Celtics played really well in that particular area of the ball game like when it comes to getting their shots off 
Uh, they definitely were reading. You can tell that they were reading what the defense was giving them, right? Because as the bead was dropping, boom, they stopped, pop, and shoot right there, right there in their mid-range, and they were hitting. So I also saw the Celtics play came to, like, their one-on-one matchups. I think they felt like, hey, I saw <laughs> I saw Jalen Brown numerous times like, yo, I got this guy, I can get right by him and get to the rim. And he did. So I know we talked about, you know, ball movement and them not moving the ball as fluently as they normally would. We saw the ball not being passed, like guys getting into double teams and then putting up weird shots, Canner. And then it, uh, it, it was just like awkward when they just wouldn't make that extra pass or the right pass or whatnot coming from the bigs. But I think that they're going to live with this. I think if I don't think Philly is going to adjust because I think Philly feels like they want the Celtics to take those mid-range shots because the Celtics are one of those teams where they're, they're either going to hit their shots or they're going to miss, and then Philly's going to try to get easy points in transition off the rebound, right? And the Celtics can't out-rebound the 76ers. I know we pulled it in really close. The numbers were close at the end. But if you watch that game, it was like we couldn't grab a board because we just didn't have the size grabbing those particular type of boards or we weren't boxing out or like it, it, it was just, it was just really awkward, but the Celtics did adjust. And I think that the Celtics are back to that model. Look, this is what's working. I know we're missing a key piece now. I know we're going to be missing Gordon Hayward, but like Brad said, like we're going to be able to, our guys are going to be able to figure it out. Like that's something that they've been doing. This is called adversity guys. Like this is something that they they're used to being faced with. And they're used to overcoming. So I'm excited to see what they're going to do. I just don't – I think Philly comes out with kind of like that same game plan, yo. Because like uh, like Adam said, if he doesn't drop, you know, and he, and, or if he does drop or whatever or whatnot, the Suggs is going to eat him in the mid-range. And if not, then the Suggs is going to get to the basket. So it's – it's this is this is a great problem to have as, as for a Celtics. Like, this is what we want. And they're just allowing the dictate, I mean, the defense to dictate what they do on offense. And to me, my friends, that's what we call controlling the game. Now, I'm with Tim. I want to see some more tempo. I want to see them play a little bit faster because they did slow the game down a bit, and that's when Philly kept coming back and punching them in the mouth. But I think the Celtics are going to be fine going forward. Now, as we move into the rest of the league, what we're going to look at now is to begin with, Orlando gave Milwaukee a punch in the mouth, a very big punch in the mouth. Nikola Vucevic dropped some buckets. He he was, I think he had 35, right? 35, yes, he had 35. So Vuce had 35, Markel Fultz had 15, a couple of the other guys chimed in with double digits as well, and they literally contained the buck. I don't know whether they can keep that going in game two, three, four, if they keep it going to two, three, four, it's done. It's a wrap. Boy, see you later, Milwaukee. Questions start rising about Giannis. I don't think that's possible for personally, but it's a nice story. Orlando lose one of their best players in Jonathan Isaac. Markel Fultz is having a bit of a resurgence in terms of his play style and his ability to do things on the floor that we all saw in college before he got the yips. Milwaukee. Yo, if Milwaukee lose in round one, then great, because it's an easy path for Boston. But I just don't see that happening. They're too strong. The only thing I question is whether if you can contain Giannis, and which Orlando did fantastically, do they really have enough to get through games without Giannis being firing on all cylinders? I mean, they need to seriously focus on containing him. If you look at just like the numbers, just the shooting splits for this game in general, Orlando almost shot 40% from three. Uh, they did 18 for 19 from the free throw line, whereas uh, the Bucks had almost 10 more free throws, but they struggled from the line. They were 18 from 28. 
And I think the big thing here also is the rebound battle was pretty much equal. Uh, Magic had 48, Bucks had 47. Um, they ended up getting beat four to 11 on the offensive rebounds. That's where Magic got beat. But that means that they were carrying the load big time defensively. So if they were locking down defensively in terms of rebounds, everything else in terms of points and paint, steals, they, they kept pace with the Bucks, which is pretty impressive. I think it's a real key thing for the Magic to just try and keep locking them down on defense. They had a bad shooting night, the Bucks did. So if you can try and replicate whatever the heck you managed to do in this game and feed the guys that you need to, I think give Fultz some looks. Make sure you obviously get Vucevic going because he is an offensive centerpiece for them. That's a, if they can at least give the Bucks a fight, that's going to make for an interesting series. If they end up taking game two, then we need to start a dialogue. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. I'm so with you. Listen, guys, look, Chris Middleton, <laughs> he went four for 12. He, he's, he only scored 14 points. He, he's not scoring the Chris Middleton numbers. But then again, he usually does very well against the Celtics. So I, I want the magic. I'm rooting for the magic. Just want you guys to know that. Like, I'm rooting for the magic. I'm rooting for the underdog in this one. But I don't think the juggernaut box, the Bucks are going to allow this to, you know, to happen. Now, if it does, then, then we can celebrate. But I, I, I really, I'm kudos to the Magic. They got themselves a win. They got really good players. They played good. DJ Augustine led with assists, had about 11 of them things. Look, <laughs> they, they out there to play some basketball. But um, I don't know if you guys remember the, when the Bucks played, when the Celtics played the Bucks and how we beat them game one very badly, and then they adjusted. So I see the same thing happening in this series. That was my thoughts exactly. I I think just after a first game loss with Mike Bunholzer at the helm, I think he's just going to come out and make some kind of decisions, make some moves to try and counteract whatever the Magic did. And, I mean, that's what it is with basketball. You play a series for a reason, but that scares me from a Magic perspective because you're already in a tough matchup. This was already a thing where I was like, oh, the poor Magic, the poor Magic at the face of the Bucks round one. That's so terrible. And then they come out and they punch him in the teeth, which means you're going to face a really angry Bucks team game too. And I, I don't, I don't envy that situation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys hit on the point that I wanted to hit on. There's not really much more I can say, but definitely the Bucks tend to respond really well when they get punched in the mouth early in a series. But they haven't been up against an underdog with nothing to lose. Usually, when they're punched in the mouth, it's by another contender. The Magic will be coming out and leaving everything on the floor every night. This is going to be a scrappy series. And I just feel like if Giannis gets contained in some way, the same way they did today, and I feel like teams are starting to get a blueprint on how to contain Giannis a bit better. Just because he's been in the league long enough now, teams have tried multiple different schemes, they've tried multiple different types of players on him. Miami kind of set that blueprint earlier in the year. I spoke about that on this podcast and my other show. If teams have got Giannis's number on how to contain him, because you're not going to stop him. You go into that game knowing that we want to not let him score more than 25. If Giannis scores 25, that's a quiet night. You can go home knowing you've done a job, a well-done job. If you do that, and then Middleton is putting up around 14 to 18 a night, where's the rest of the scoring coming from? What can they do? I don't feel like they're deep enough off the bench in terms of scoring to be able to really push teams far. So it's interesting. I'm rooting for Orlando too. I'm with you, Wayne. I really am, especially after what happened to Isaac. I feel like they deserve a bit of a Cinderella tale into the second round. And it also helps the Celtics out from that perspective. Any other storylines y'all want to touch on before we let these folks get on with the rest of their day? I don't really have anything major. I think a lot of my brain space has just been consumed by everything with Gordon Hayward and just 
hoping yeah. that that situation resolves itself okay. Yeah, I agree. I do want to say though, watch out for that OKC Houston series. That that that's something I want to look forward to. And you guys already know why. You know my guy's not playing, but that's going to be great because I want to see OKC. I want to. I just want to see them. I want. I want Houston out. <laughs> that's what I want. I want Houston out. I want OKC's like an underdog type team, and I want them to finally overcome some of the the tough things that they faced throughout their history. Um, a lot of storylines there too. Yeah. 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 Makes for fun. It's Good. like a soap opera. <laughs> right. Exactly. So, right then, y'all, we're going to leave you to get on the rest of your Wednesday. We will be back with you on Friday, as usual. It's going to be glorious. There's going to be more basketball to discuss. The playoffs are here, baby. Wayne, we need that energy. Tell us the playoffs are here. Playoffs are here, baby. Let's go. Celtics got this, man. I'm telling you. It's going to be real. And with that, we'll leave you and catch you off Friday. Have a good one.